Welcome to the Northwood Baptist Church Podcast. I'm Tommy Metter, lead pastor of Northwood Baptist Church in North Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, if you're listening today, I know exactly what you need. You need hope and encouragement. And my prayer is that the message you are about to hear will help you find hope and encouragement in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to learn more about our church, visit our website, northwoodbaptist.com, or follow us on Facebook. Now, get ready for a message that will help you connect faith to life. All right, take your Bibles and turn to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, in a minute we're going to read the first five verses of Genesis 1, and then we'll skip down and read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 2. So find Genesis 1 in your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, man, it is a good day for you, because all you have to do is go to page 1, and you are there. Genesis 1, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, that's okay, because in the seat before you, you will find a copy of the Bible. Take that Bible and find Genesis 1 with you. If you don't, uh, with us, if you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home with you, read it, and learn about the God who loves loves you and desires a relationship with you. Genesis 1 is where we're spending our time together this morning as we're starting a brand new series of messages. We're going to take the next several months, uh, several years, several decades, however long it takes, and walk through the book of Genesis together. This is a wonderful book. It's so fascinating, and I'm looking forward to us diving in and seeing what God has to teach us about himself and about us uh, from this great book of the Bible. So Genesis 1 is where we're spending our time together this morning. So what I did this week as I was preparing uh, for this message is I, uh, I put a uh, request on Facebook because I wanted to hear from you. Because obviously, even if you've never, you know, been to church in your life, you've probably heard the statement, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Whether you agree with it or not, you've heard it, right? I mean, that's probably one of the most famous statements in all of literature. And so, so here we are in this room, and, and as followers of Jesus, we believe that God created everything we see and know. And so I just wanted to know from you, what, what are some of the most beautiful sights of creation? creation that you've seen. And so I put that on Facebook, asked you to, to post your pictures in the comments, and uh, there were 123 different comments. So I can't show you all those pictures, or we'll be here a very long time, but I did want to show you a few of them. And so, so let me just show you, some of you know what this is, this is Angel Oak down in Charleston. How many of you been there before? You need to. You live in the area and you haven't been there, shame on you. You need to go. It's really cool, right? Uh, it's, it really is. You can't touch the tree, though. It's really but you can see it. Here's Victoria Falls. Uh, one of our, our ladies in the church lived in Africa a few years, and so she's put this picture of this beautiful site. Then go on to the next slide. I got several of you posted pictures of the mountains, and, and, and go ahead to the next slide. I think this one was somewhere in Wyoming. I've never been to Wyoming, but I want to go. That looks really, really nice. You go on the next slide. This is the Grand Canyon. How many have been to the Grand Canyon before? Yeah, so some of you have. I've never been. I would love to go. It's my bucket list. I mean, I just can't imagine the beauty there. A lot of you posted pictures of your kids, right? Yeah, that one gets the awe. And so a lot of you posted pictures of your kids, which absolutely, because every time, or at least most of the time, when we look at our kids, we see the, the fingerprints of God all over our kids, unless they're doing something they shouldn't. That's another story. And so some of you have posted pictures of your dogs, which I found really interesting because as, as I scrolled through those 123 different comments, photos, not one of you posted a picture of your cat. <laughs> and I think we all know why that is because cats are demonic. So let's go on to the next slide. So... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> someone, someone posted the crawfish. So if, if you're like me and you lived in the bayou, I mean, hey, there's nothing more beautiful than crawfish and sucking the head. It's good stuff. Go on to the next slide. Somebody posted bacon. That, right? I mean, absolutely. Nothing like a slaughtered pig. Chick-fil-A, you can, I mean, somebody had to post that one. I mean, it's anyway. And then, and, and then someone posted, 
Now, here's what we know. Because we're good Christians, we know that God doesn't make any mistakes. But sometimes you have to wonder, right? So, so, but it was cool. It was cool to see your photos and what you thought about, you know, some of these beautiful sights and creation. And, and we are. We are followers of Jesus. We are, we are unashamedly Christian. We believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And, and, and here's reality. If you believe that, if you believe that God is creator of all, you, you probably know this. You're in the minority. You live in a world that says, no, that's not true. In fact, if, you, if your kids are in, in the public school system and you were to open up your child's biology book, you ain't going to find anything in there about God creating anything. It's evolution and the world's 10 trillion years old and this and that. And, but here we are. We say, no, we believe that there is a God who created everything we see and know, and he is a good God. Genesis 1 is a wonderful passage of Scripture. We could literally spend hours, and I know you don't want to do that this morning. I'll try not to, but we could spend hours talking about all the details of Genesis chapter 1. But if you think about it, Genesis chapter 1, it, it, it's written. It's written to really show us one central truth. Our God that we serve, he, was, he is powerful. And because he is the powerful creator of all, he is worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our obedience. That is, in a nutshell, Genesis chapter 1. That's it. We can close our Bibles, but don't. And we could go home now, but don't. But that really is the message of Genesis chapter 1. And so I want you to know that as we start the book of Genesis and as we particularly look at Genesis chapter 1 this morning, I want you to understand that Genesis chapter 1 doesn't answer all the questions that we as 21st century Westerners have about the beginning of the earth. Just doesn't. I mean, we have questions like this, don't we? I mean, what about the dinosaurs? And, and that's a good question, but, but Genesis 1 doesn't tell us anything about the dinosaurs. We have questions about how does science and, and the book of Genesis work together? Because, you know, if you listen to the scientific world, there seems to be a lot of conflict between Genesis and science. And, and so... Genesis doesn't answer all those questions for us. I mean, you and I believe as followers of Jesus that, that, that Genesis is not a science book, but when it speaks about matters of science, it's accurate. It's not even a history book. It doesn't tell us the history of everything. It's a specific history book. Really, Genesis is it's a God book. It's designed to teach us about God. So it doesn't answer all of our science questions. Or the age of the earth. Is the earth thousands of years old, millions of years old, billions, trillions Genesis 1 doesn't answer those questions for us. Those are good questions and, and questions we should talk about. And, and there have been many over the years, uh, Christian scientists and Bible scholars who have, have tried to answer those questions so we can understand how science and the Bible work together and the age of the earth and all those different things that we have questions about. But, but I want you to understand why Moses wrote these words. Think about it. The people the Hebrews, they had been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. And all of a sudden, this guy named Moses comes back to Egypt after being away for some time. God's going to set us free. What God? Right? Because in, in, in that time, there are lots of gods that the Egyptians worshipped. What God? And the God of all creation rescues his people, the Hebrews, brings them out into the wilderness, meets with them on Mount Sinai, gives them the law. And if you're an ancient Hebrew, you're still wondering, who in the world is this God? 
who brought us out of Egypt and brought us in the wilderness? That's the question Moses is answering for us. Do you understand? I mean, he's not answering all the science questions that we ask. He's answering a very specific question uh, that an ancient people were asking as they came out of Egypt and were in the promised land, or excuse me, in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. Who is our God? And another question that Moses is answering was a question that maybe a lot of us are asking as well. What does God want with us? What's he going to do with us? Why did he bring us out here? Those are the questions that the people were asking, and those are the questions that Moses is answering as he records the events of Genesis. Now, surely the people had some knowledge of Yahweh, their God. I mean, certainly some of these stories we read about in Genesis had been passed down from generation to generation. But God inspires Moses in the wilderness to write these things down so these ancient Hebrew people could could know their history, know who their God was, know where they came from, and and ultimately know what God was going to do in them and through them. And and so this is a God book, and, and it's relevant for us because, let's be honest, oftentimes we're asking the same questions. Who is this God that we serve, and what does he want from us? And so as we look at this chapter this morning. I'm going to give you a lot. There's a lot here. So you're going to have to buckle your seatbelts and go deep with me this morning. And, and what I want to show you this morning as we look at Genesis 1, I, I just want to show you three ways that we're supposed to respond to this wonderful passage of Scripture, a passage that's so well known both inside the church and outside the church. I want to show you three ways we're to respond to God as we reflect on what Genesis 1 is teaching us this morning. So take your Bibles, Genesis 1, go ahead and rise to your feet as we honor the ring of God's word together. Genesis 1 verses 1 through 5 is where we're going to start and then we're going to skip down and read a few verses in Genesis chapter 2. Listen to what the Bible says. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning, one day. Now come down to chapter 2 and listen to how this particular section ends. Chapter 2, verse 1. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed, and on the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, for on it he rested from all his work of creation. Father, thank you for this morning, and thank you for the time that we have together in your word. Now, Father, as we look at this wonderful chapter of Scripture, I pray you would remind us of exactly who you are and how we are to live in response to you. Father, thank you that you are a God who communicates to us. You communicate to us through your word. You help us to see your truth. You communicate to us now through your spirit as as we are under your truth. You're going to do a work of transformation in our lives as we listen to you this morning and as we respond to your voice. And so thank you for that. Help us listen carefully. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. So, so what I want you to, to do right now, maybe if you take notes and just write this word in, in your Bible right there in Genesis 1, write the word order. 
Because if you think about it, that, that's really what uh, Genesis 1 is, is showing us. It's showing us a God of order. And in, in those days and in an ancient culture when, when there were so many different gods that were worshipped and, and so many different stories about how these gods brought things into existence, and there's some wild stories. Moses wants the people to know there's not lots of God, there's one God. And this one God, he's established order. And you see it, right? Uh, The earth, verse 2, was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And so you you have this this formless mass that that the God is going to bring order to, and and he's going to bring it order in a very specific way by the sound of his voice. And, And look what it says. This is interesting to me. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, we're not going to spend much time talking about this 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 morning, uh, but Genesis chapter 1, it gives us a picture of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so right here in verse 2, you see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters, awaiting the voice of the Father. When we get down to verse 26, verse 26 says, let us make man in our own image. Now, you probably know this because you're good Bible students. Over in John chapter 1 and in in Colossians chapter 1, the Bible says that in the beginning, Jesus Christ was there. Colossians 1, uh, Paul tells us that, that he's created all things, Jesus Christ, and that, that he holds all things together. And so in Genesis 1, the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And, and here in this verse, chap- and verse 2 of chapter 1, the Spirit of God hovers over the surface of the waters. That, that's interesting to me. You might want to circle that word hovering. Because when that word in the Hebrew language is used, it's used most often uh, to to talk about a bird, to talk about a mama bird who is hovering over her nest, watching over her young. In fact, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 11, the Bible describes God as an eagle who hovers over a nest, watching over her young. You see? And so you have it here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2, that the spirit is hovering like a mama bird. Isn't that interesting? It's it's the language of protection, intimacy. And and so in in these very first few verses, we're introduced to a God who is intimately, intimately connected with the creation, watching over and caring and and bringing bringing it into existence by the sound of his voice. Verse three, then God said, let there be light and there was light. Light. Now, I don't know if you know this or not. I know many of you, you've read through Genesis chapter 1 before, uh, and you probably know that on the first three days of creation that God forms the earth. You have things like light being made. And, and then you have on the second day how God separates the waters and, and creates the sky. You have the third day where he brings vegetation and the, the land and the vegetation on the land. And, and then you have the fourth day and days four through six. After he forms the earth, he makes it habitable. He begins to fill the earth. On the day four, you have the sun and the moon put in the sky. You have a day five, you have the, the, the fish and the birds that fill the earth. On day six, you have the animals, the field, and, and man and woman. And so that's really the pattern of creation you see in these six days. There's six days of creation. There's eight creative acts that take place during these six days of creation. The first three days of creation, God forms the earth. And the last three days of creation, God 
fills the earth. Makes sense? You're with me. You're still awake. Good. That's good. I'm glad you are. And so here on this first date, this is interesting. God says, and what's interesting, as you walk through these seven days of creation, the seventh day God rested, ten times you find this phrase, and God said, I mean, it's interesting because God does not call down a bunch of angels and say, okay, come on down here, put this thing together for me. Uh, That's not how it happens. God speaks, and at the sound of his voice, stuff happens. At the sound of his voice, whatever he decrees, whatever he says, it happens. I mean, this is a powerful message for ancient Hebrew people, that they serve a powerful God, that all he has to do is speak, and things happen. And his very first creative act right here in Genesis chapter 1 is that he creates light. Which is interesting. Because he doesn't create the sun and the moon until the fourth day. And you and I know this. We can walk outside right now and observe this. That the sun is a source of light. And in the evening, the moon, it, it shines as well. It's a lesser light. And so how can there be light without sun? I mean, what's going on here? I want you to follow me. You, you know this because you're, you're good Bible students. There's this huge theme in the Bible, right, about how God is light, that, that he ultimately is light. You get into the New Testament, and we read about how Jesus is the light of the world. Ultimately, the sun is not our source of light. Ultimately, the moon is not source of light. Ultimately, it is God himself who is light. It is he who shines throughout the universe, making his presence known. God said, let there be light. He is the one that radiates everything in his universe. You follow? And so you have these first few days of creation where God speaks. And as God speaks, things happen. He forms the earth. He he, he, forms. separates the waters. He makes dry land. He puts trees and vegetation in land. He's making it habitable. And when we get into Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see this wonderful garden that he places in his creation for man and woman to enjoy. And then you come and you look at verse 14. First three days, God forms. Second three days, God fills. Now, again, we could spend a lot of time talking through each day of creation, but I just want you to see a few things. Look at what it says in verse 14. God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for the seasons and for days and years. There will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth. And it was so. God made, listen, two great lights. The greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night as well as the stars. Now, it's interesting to me how Moses uses words in these verses. He doesn't use the word sun. He doesn't use the word moon. What he says is that God created two lights, a greater light for the day and a lesser light for the night. The question is why? Now, I already told you, and and you you know this, in, in ancient Egyptian culture, where the Hebrew people were enslaved for 400 years, there were all kinds of gods that they worshipped, a multitude of gods. The most powerful god was Amon-Ra, the sun god. And another powerful god was Kron, the moon god. And so in an ancient Egyptian culture, when you looked up and you looked at that sun, you worshipped because the sun was God. 
the most powerful God. And you looked up at the night sky and you saw the moon. You worshiped because the moon was a powerful God. And maybe if you were a Hebrew and from generations past, you had been your parents and your grandparents and your great-great-parents and your great-grandparents and your great-great-parents. I say that right? No, I didn't, but whatever. So, so all those people in Egypt, right? Over those generations of being enslaved in Egypt, maybe some of those Hebrew people came to believe in some of the Egyptian gods, in Amon-Ra, in Kron, and the other gods they worshipped. And now in Genesis chapter 1, Moses is making it very clear to this Hebrew people. The sun is not a god. The moon is not a god. There is only one god, the god that brought you out of Egypt who has you now in the wilderness and who's going to take you into the promised land. There is one God. And when you look up in the sky, that great light you see in the day and that lesser light you see at night, they are not to be worshipped because all they are are creations of the one God. They are not God. They are created by God. The sun and the moon point to the glory of the one true God, you see? And so really, when you read Genesis 1, it's an apologetic, if you will, that, that Moses is, is, is writing to remind these ancient Hebrews of the God that they serve. There's one true God, and these things that are worshipped in Egypt, these gods that are worshipped in Egypt, they're not gods at all. You come down, look at day 5 and day 6, and you see more of God's creative power. The fish that fill the waters and... I don't know if you knew this or not. I didn't know it until this week. There are something like 34,000 different species of fish and, and marine life that populate our oceans and our lakes and our rivers and our ponds. And every year, we discover about 250 more species of marine life. God knows every one of them. He created them. And the birds in the air, I don't know if you know this or not, I didn't know it until this week, there are over 18,000 species of birds that fly above our heads. Not all at the same time, but, but they're up there, right? The creativity and power of God. On the sixth day, God creates animals that roam the earth. Over 5,000 species of mammals that roam our earth. And then the highlight of God's creative work on the sixth day, God creates, and I know this isn't popular in our culture right now, but God creates male and female, two distinct people who he will unite in a bond of marriage. It's interesting. The creative work of God that culminates on the sixth day with two people, Adam and Eve, we'll read about in Genesis chapter 2, that are created in the image of God. But, 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 but what Moses wants us to know before we get into day six and talk about Adam and Eve and talk about a uh, man and woman made in his image, what Moses wants us to know is that God is powerful. He's done all of this through his voice. He said it and it happened. He said it and, and birds filled the air and, and fish filled the sea. He said it. And the stars were placed in the sky and the sun and moon. He said it and it happened. God's word is powerful. 
And you know that, right? And so, so I think what this is telling us, what, what Moses is reminding us is because God's word is powerful, I must pay close attention to his word, right? His word's powerful, but think about this as well. His word reveals his what? His character. Uh, that, that, that when I think about his word, I think about his power, power, but I also think about who he is when I think about his word. Because in John chapter 1, John writes and he says that Jesus is the word, that ultimately Jesus reveals the very nature of who God is. And what John goes on to say in John chapter 1 is Jesus, who is the word of God, revealed to us, he is full of grace and truth. He's powerful and he's gracious and God's word, oh, this is so good, reveals his love. Remember the spirit hovering over the waters is is intimate. He creates man and woman in his image. It's intimate. And then you go to the cross and and as Jesus is, is taking his last breaths, dying on a cross for you and me, the word of God, Jesus in the flesh, he speaks He speaks words of love. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you see? All throughout the pages of Scripture, God speaks. He speaks in Genesis 1, bringing about his creation at the sound of his voice. He speaks to his people at Mount Sinai. It's so fascinating to me that when you read, when you read uh, Genesis chapter 1, you read 10 times. 10 times, and God said, and God said, and God said. Do you know where else God speaks 10 times? On Mount Sinai. He gives 10 words of command. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. And so I think it's deliberate. When, when, when Moses is writing Genesis chapter 1, He's reminding the Hebrew people that this God that they serve, who brought them out of Egypt, this God who on Sinai revealed his law to them, who said these 10 commands, he is the God in Genesis 1, whose word you must pay attention to. You've got to take God seriously. I think that's the point here. I think that's the point of Genesis 1. I think that's the point of the entire Bible. This God who has spoken to us and ultimately spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ, take him seriously. He's not to be taken lightly. He's not the big man upstairs. He's not out there somewhere. He's not a a myth. He's not a legend. He's God. He's God who's revealed himself to you, who's spoken to you and put you in a good world to live in for his glory and his purpose. Take his word seriously. Yet I know it because it's true of me, just like it's true of you. We oftentimes don't take him very seriously. We treat him as if he's out there somewhere or just the big man upstairs, or just maybe even an inconvenience to the way we want to live. Yes, he is creator, and he he allows us to enjoy his creation. In fact, Stacy and I, we're heading to the mountains to take our our retreat. We've been waiting for months for this, and we're going to leave, and tomorrow morning, we're going to be hiking in the waterfalls, and it's going to be 45 is the high, and it's supposed to be rainy. And Stacy is so excited about it. In fact, we were packing yesterday and I was telling her, hey, it's going to be cold. Make sure you take your jacket, get your gloves, whatever you need. But we're, we're doing this. Like, we're, we're going to be in the, in the woods and we're going we're gonna to be chasing waterfalls. It's going to be awesome. And, and she looks at me while she's packing and she asks the question, well, what do I get to do that's fun? <laughs> what do I get to do that's fun? It's like she's with me. 
Like, like I, I can't, uh, let's be honest, wives. Come on now. Can you imagine anything more romantic than walking with your husband through the woods chasing waterfalls? I mean, wh- fun. I mean, I can't think of anything better. We get to enjoy God's creation and she gets to enjoy God's creation with me. I mean, what's better than that, right? But, 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 but you know, I mean, I, I tell you that to tell you this. Yes, God has created a good creation for us to enjoy. And when we see things like the Grand Canyon, we should rejoice. When we see things like the mountains, we should rejoice. But, but all of this is pointing to the glory of God and, and God's creation is screaming to us. Listen to his voice. Listen to this authoritative God. Listen to this one who has spoken to you through his son, Jesus Christ. Take him seriously. I must pay attention to God's word, but also think about this. I must represent God well on this earth. Verse 26, let us make man in our image. Now listen to what it says, and we're, we're going to try to be quick with this. Look at what it says. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface in the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. This is so good. Now, notice a couple of things. Notice one, the, the phrase, let us make man in our own image. The, the Hebrew people had come out of an Egyptian culture that had tried to do what? Make God in their image. A multitude of gods. All the stories about their gods and all the ways their God did this and their gods did that. And now God speaks to his ancient people, the Hebrews, and says, no, no, it's not that way. You don't make me into your image. You don't make me into the kind of God you want me to be. That's not how it works. And it's not how it works for you either. We don't get to decide the kind of God we want. We don't get to give God the kind of characteristics that we want him to have. We don't get to form a God out of our image. That's idolatry. No, no, here's the way it works. God makes us in his image, made in the image of God. And if you think about it, this would have been wonderful news for the ancient Hebrew people. Because when, when Moses is telling them about how God created and how God created them, for 400 years, now you can't get this out of your mind. For 400 years, they had been what? Slaves. The, the only reason why they existed in those 400 years was to serve the Egyptian pharaoh. That was it. Generation after generation after generation, that's what they did. Slaves, no freedom. They were under the rule of pharaoh. And then God says, no. You're made in my image. And you're not slaves. You're made to rule. Isn't this good? You're made to represent me on this earth. You're made to have dominion, to cultivate the fields, to subdue the wild animals, lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and everything else, right? See, I worked that in there. That was, that was good. That was extra. 
But, but you get to subdue all that. You get to reign and, and rule with me. You get to represent me on this earth. And, and here we are thousands of years later and, and this mission has not changed. You are still, every one of you, made in the image of God and you have divine purpose given to you by the creator of all. And that creator of all has given you the purpose of representing him on this earth. You think about it, and we'll see it as we walk through the story of Genesis. Once you get to Genesis chapter 12, and God says to Abraham, go wherever I tell you, you go, and I'm going to make you into a great nation. And from your descendants, you're going to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. And here we are in this room. None of that's changed. You're still made in the image of God, which means, right, that, that you have value in his eyes, Every one of you in this room, you have the fingerprints of God all over your life and you represent God by reflecting his glory. Now think about this. I love the way John Calvin described it. John Calvin, you might know, was that that great reformer back in the 16th century. And when he talked about being made in the image of God, he said we're like a mirror. A mirror reflects. And and so, so when people look at your life, when they look at my life, what people should see is something of the glory of God in the way that you love, in the way that you care for people. Think about, think about the fruit of the Spirit that we stay for the last couple of months and the way you live out those character qualities of Christ. You are reflecting who God is by the way you represent him on this earth and wherever you find yourself, whether you find yourself at work or you find yourself at home or you find yourself at school, wherever you are, your primary, not your secondary, not your tertiary, but your primary responsibility, wherever you find yourself in this life, wherever, did you hear me? Wherever you find yourself in this life, your primary, let me tell you again, your primary responsibility, wherever you find yourself in this life, is to represent God. That's what it means to bear the image of God. Wherever you find yourself, you represent his glory. By, by living out his character, his love, his joy, his peace, his patience, his kindness, his goodness, his self-control. And you rule with him. You work creatively. You work hard. You imitate the work of God as he allows you to. John Calvin said they were all mirrors. Years ago, and some of you have, have heard this story before, I preached this very passage at, um, at the church I was before I was here. And, and I was young and, and dumb, and I'm still young and maybe a little bit smarter, but that jury's still out. So, so I, was, I was there, and I was preaching this passage, and I brought up on the stage with me a, a full-length mirror. It was Stacy's mirror. I, I begged her to let me take it to the church and use it as an illustration. Um, and, and so uh, that's another story for another day. Um, but so I've had this mirror on stage, and, 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 and I had a hammer. That was a good idea bad execution. So I had this hammer and, and, and I was talking about how we were made in the image of God, a mirror to reflect God's glory. And, and, and just as smoothly and as quietly as I could, I, I reached down and grabbed the hammer and smashed the mirror right in the middle of it. Now, I've never smashed a mirror before in my life and will never do so again. And I'll tell you why in just a moment. I'd never smashed, I didn't know what to expect. The first thing that happened well, yeah, it all happened simultaneously, I guess. But the first thing I remember was it was loud, like a lot louder than I thought it would be. In fact, in my congregation at that time, on the third row sat a, a gentleman who was there every single Sunday who was blind. He couldn't see. And, and, and he, he literally thought a gun went off in our, it was terrible. 
like he hit the floor. I mean, I felt so bad. It was awful. And so, so, and then the, the pieces of the mirror, I didn't realize how far they would fly. They mean, like, when, I think they're still picking up pieces of this mirror at this church. I mean, they're, they're all over the place. And, and so they flew and they cut my hand. And so my hand was just gushing blood. That's a sight you want to see on a Sunday morning, right? I mean, and so there I was, and I, and I had about 15 minutes left in my message, and I'm, I'm like losing blood, I'm going to pass out. My, you know, it was, it was just, it was not good. But here was the point I was trying to illustrate, and, and the reason why I didn't do it here on stage this morning, because I didn't want to cut myself again. So anyway, um, but, but the point I was trying to illustrate was that we're all mirrors, made to reflect the image of God. But we're all broken mirrors. That's what sin has done. And you know how a broken mirror works? You can pick up the shards of a broken mirror and you can see something of your reflection, but not like you can a full mirror. We're broken mirrors. But Jesus Christ came. And he was the perfect mirror. The image of God in the flesh. And he came and he died in our place, taking our sin upon himself and rose from the dead three days later. Why? So that God might restore in us his image. You're still a broken mirror, but God, through his grace and through your faith in Jesus Christ, right now, as you walk by faith, as you trust him, as you you represent God in this world, wherever you find yourself right now, God in your life, he's putting the pieces back together. And there will come a day when, when you are home with him that you will once again be what he intended you to be, perfectly reflecting his image like he designed you to. You see? Oh, this is so good. This is Genesis chapter one, that, that, that God speaks. You need to listen, but also you need to represent him on this earth. And one final thing and we're done. You must rest in his goodness. I don't know if you saw this while we were reading through Genesis chapter one, but seven times, seven times it says, God says, it was good. It was good. The seventh time, it was very good on that sixth day. And then you come to chapter 2. We read this at the beginning of the message, and you look at what the Bible says. So the heavens and the earth and everything in them were completed. On the seventh day, God had completed his work that he had done, and he rested. Oh, so good. Now, I don't know if you know this about ancient life, but do you know who rested? Do you know who rested in ancient life? Nobody. You didn't rest. You worked the fields. You, you worked every day, sun up to sundown. The only people who rested in ancient culture, now watch this. You, you, you got to get this. Come in real close. The only people who rested in an ancient culture were kings. Pharaoh rested because he had built this great empire. He defeated all his enemies. He completed his work. And everybody served the Pharaoh. Pharaoh rested. You know it's arrested in Scripture? Just to give you another example, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Bible says that, that after David had defeated his enemies, he had rest. Who rested? Kings. And Moses is communicating to us through the Spirit of God, God rested. He is the great king far greater than Pharaoh, far greater than David, far greater than any other king. He is the king above all kings. He is the one true king, and he rests. And this was so fascinating. The Hebrew people, as they wandered in the wilderness, 
When, when, when they heard Genesis chapter 1, when, when Moses told them the story of creation, and they got to the seventh day, and, and they heard that God rested on the seventh day, what do you think they immediately thought about? The fourth command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. In Egypt, are you following? In Egypt, the Hebrew people, they didn't have a day of rest all their lives. But now in the wilderness, God, who's rested, he says to a people, you come and join my rest. Six days you work, and then you get a day off. Take a nap. And that's really good, good advice, isn't it? Because especially on a day like today, when we lost an hour of sleep last night, many of you are going to go home and take a nap. Enjoy it. God wants you to rest physically even. But you need more than a nap. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 15, when, when, when Moses and Deuteronomy um, kind of recapitulates the Ten Commands, he says, on the Sabbath day, remember, remember, on that Sabbath, remember how God brought you out of Egypt. So on the seventh day, when the people rested, they weren't just to take a nap. They were to remember, to remember how God had created everything through his powerful voice, that he is a God who's rested. He is the king above all kings, a king who can be trusted. Do you follow? And they were to remember that this powerful king had done the impossible. He had brought them out of Egypt into a wilderness where he provided all their needs to give them rest. And he was going to take them into a promised land where they would rule over the land and reign over the land and cultivate the land and rest. God says to his people, I'm the kind of God that gives you what no other king will give you. I give you rest. And then you get to the New Testament. And Jesus, our King of kings and Lord of lords, when questioned about the Sabbath day, he says what, church? I am the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath isn't a day of the week. I mean, it's good to take a day of the week like we do to come together and to reflect on the goodness of God, to celebrate, to be under his word, to get our spiritual batteries recharged. You need a Sunday like this to remember God's redemptive work in your life. You need it. But what Jesus reminds us in the New Testament is that the Sabbath ultimately is not a day of the week. Now, come in close. The Sabbath is a person. You find your ultimate rest not in a day of the week. You find your ultimate rest not in a Sunday afternoon nap. You find your ultimate rest in a Savior who died in your place and rose from the dead. A Savior. A Savior. Whom you know. And when you know Him, and because you know Him, you can say, all is well. a person of rest, a person who knows that Jesus is on the throne and in control of everything, a person who knows that Jesus is for your good and his glory, a person who knows that Jesus has his best for you, a person who knows those things can rest. 
24 hours a day, seven days a week, no matter what's going on in this life, no matter how crazy life gets, no matter the circumstances, no matter the sickness, no matter the disease, no matter the hardships, no matter the sorrows, a person who knows Jesus can always rest because a person who knows Jesus knows that Jesus has done everything for you to secure for you life abundant and eternal. All is well with my soul because of Jesus our Sabbath. He is our rest. And so you begin to see it. Here in Genesis 1, you see this grand narrative of a God who is powerful, who creates everything we see and know. And in Genesis chapter 1, you see this grand narrative beginning to unfold. The story of a God who will redeem his people through the one who is our Sabbath, Jesus Christ. And maybe you're here this morning and you don't know the one who is the Sabbath and you're restless. There's no rest in your life. Today, you can find rest. Find rest by believing that this one who created all, this one who created all, now watch this, it's so good, stepped into his creation. Because you and I, we're broken mirrors. We broke it through our sin. And this creator God stepped into his creation, the son of God, Jesus Christ, and lived perfectly in every way, never sinned. He is the image of God for us. He went to a cross and died the death that you deserve because of your sinfulness and your rebellion against God. And then he rose from the dead three days later to offer us the gift of life abundant and eternal if we'll believe in him. Believing that he died that death for us and rose again proving that he was God in the flesh for us. If we believe and turn from our sins and place our faith in him and acknowledge him as Lord and Savior of our lives, we'll find rest. Rest now and rest forever in him. And so this morning, if you're in this room and you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, today is the perfect day for you to give your heart to Jesus. In the corners of this room, there are two crosses. And in just a moment, as we sing a song invitation, there will be people who are standing at those crosses who cannot wait to pray with you to help you begin a relationship with Jesus. Today, let this be your day of salvation. Let today be the day that you give your life to Jesus once and for all that you turn from your sins and that you turn to him. And for the rest of us, you're here and you're a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, maybe this morning you realize as a follower of Jesus that you're not taking advantage of the rest that you have in Jesus. You're not trusting like you should. Or maybe you're here and you're realizing that, man, God is creator all, but I sure have not been paying attention to his word recently. I don't know how God is moving in your heart this morning, but I know in these moments, even as a follower of Jesus, he's calling you to respond. And maybe it's just coming and repenting of some sins that he's revealing to you now. And maybe it's a a, a renewed commitment to place your eyes on him. However God is leading you in these moments as we close our time together, you come as the Spirit of God leads. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for time and your word. Thank you that you are our good creator. You're our good God. Father, as we respond to your word this morning, We respond in faith and obedience for that person who's here, who's never placed his faith or her faith in Jesus. I pray that person will come trusting you as Lord of their lives. So have your way now, I ask, in these final moments and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You rise your feet as a time of invitation together. You come now as the Spirit of God leads you. You come on.